So inequality is nothing new in our society, and really in human society at large. Circumstances, of course, lead to different people having different things. Every single one of us can talk about the stories of our lives, how we made certain decisions, and those certain decisions lead to certain gains or certain losses. And we all today are at some point on some sort of spectrum in terms of what we have. Even in the stories in the gospel, we often will meet those with means and those who don't, like our story today. And oftentimes, Jesus isn't necessarily commenting on the wealth itself. And oftentimes, I think when we have conversations about inequality, the first thing when we turn to the gospel, the stories that we're told, is somehow Jesus decries wealth. And then the conversation ends, right? Because then it's sort of like, well, if I feel like I have some wealth, then clearly God is against me. And the whole inequality conversation falls flat on its face then. So I want to get that out of the way first thing as we dive into this story, is that if you are somebody who has means, that's not a bad thing. However... I think what this story is trying to unfold for us is that there are consequences when one has wealth. Now, our story today invites us to think of two things. One is a gate, and the other is a chasm. And we'll talk about each of those. So the first thing we'll talk about is the gate. It sort of gets passed right by us in the reading, right? But it the gate is the dividing line of the two characters in this story of Lazarus and the rich man. On the inside of this gate is absolute opulence. The word sumptuous, this is the only time in the entire New Testament it is used. So Luke is clearly trying to tell us something about the level of feast that is occurring I told some folks this morning what I was thinking about is, is the Monty Python skit, Mr. Creosote, coming in with his wefa thin mint. The five of you that got that, you're welcome. But utter and complete opulence. Purple as a color was not easy to make. It took time. Linen was a material that took time. So right at the beginning, Luke is telling us this story that this is somebody who's really well off. And he's eaten. And I imagine, while I'm not sure what the caloric intake requirements were in biblical times, my presumption is that when one says it is opulent, it is more than, more than enough. I don't imagine the guy was lacking for much of anything. A rich man. Inside the gate. On the outside of the gate, though, we meet Lazarus. And outside, Lazarus has such a hunger that he is willing to ignore the open sores on his body, and he lets dogs attend to it. As much as I love my dog, if I had an open sore, it is not the medical treatment I would pursue. But in Luke's telling, that's not the most important thing. He is hungry and begging for just the smallest scraps to potentially fall off that opulent table onto the ground that he can collect them. 
gate stays with the rich man. I also find it interesting that we never hear the name of the rich man. Lazarus is mentioned multiple times. We know who Lazarus is. We don't know who the rich man is. And I think that tells us a little bit about where Luke's mind is. The unnamed rich man. But I think the gate stays with the rich man. We can imagine, of course, that he left from time to time. There's no indication that this is some sort of compound, that he never leaves to go down the street. And he knew Lazarus well enough that when he died, he could mention him by name. So this wasn't any surprise to him. You know, that guy that's sitting next to you, Abraham. No, get Lazarus for me. So he knew him well enough to know his name, but clearly didn't have enough to do anything about it. In his purple linens, in the royal feast. The gate begins to close around him. He somehow avoids any idea of providing any help. And, in fact, it seems his view, even into death, was as though it was his needs that should be served. Do you notice in the dialogue between Abraham and the rich man, there's no indication of like, well, I'm glad that Lazarus is okay. Well, I'm sorry that I didn't do anything. No, what happens is, take care of me, Abraham, which is kind of bold. Have Lazarus come up here or down here, as the case may be. Help me feel better. Well, Abraham, could you send somebody to my brothers? Can you delegate somebody to go take care of them so they don't have the same thing that happens to me? It's not being wealthy that's the problem. It is the consequences of how it closes around us in such a way that it begins to get hard to see what are the needs of the person outside the gate. So that gate continues to stick around. And over time, that gate is no longer a gate. But the ground beneath that gate steadily begins to divide and divide until it's a chasm. Now, we can geographically think of a chasm But I'd argue it seems that already a gate is enough of a chasm to separate the rich man from Lazarus, even if we're talking 20 or 30 feet. And this seems to take the rich man by surprise. You notice that? He doesn't seem to be aware that, oh, there might be a divide between me and this other person. That somehow even after death, there isn't some kind of distance And what's interesting is that when you read the language, you look at the Greek and you look at the way it's been translated in English, it says in Luke that the chasm has been fixed. Now, for any of you who are like English nerds and you like to pay attention to tenses, this is a passive perfect. What helps me when I remember that perfect, because, you know, you got to study all of this, is that perfect means the action's been completed. So at some point, That chasm wasn't fixed. There was some point that that action had to be completed. 
But now the chasm has been fixed. There might have been a time when it wasn't so insurmountable for that rich man to go meet Lazarus. And interestingly enough, it might not have been, there might have been a time when it wouldn't have been so difficult for Lazarus to give healing to the rich man. But clearly, if you're surrounded by opulent wealth, why would you think that you had anything to be healed about? But over time, the chasm grew to the point that when they're both dead, it is completely insurmountable for even the angels themselves to cross over. The rich man had the tools to close that chasm. And he chose not to. Because what's Abraham's answer to his brothers? They have Moses and the prophets. That didn't just happen between the time the rich man died and this conversation. The tools were there for the rich man to do something. And he chose to ignore them until it was too late. And meanwhile, Lazarus is healed. The stories of Moses and the prophets remind us of the ways that God has been faithful to God's people, that it has meant that the world has been set on a different axis. God took care of the people. The whole conversation and the prophets remind the people in power that when they're not doing the right thing, to come back. But it's never fun when you're closed in and you have what you need to hear that you're not doing the right thing. And I am convinced that while it is indeed true that all of us have different levels of wealth, most of us have something to give. Most of us can have a prophet nagging on us to say, you might want to break down that gate just a little bit. So how? How do we do that? I actually think this Jeremiah story helps to give us an answer. And it's an interesting way of connecting it in the lectionary. <clears throat> the story in Jeremiah seems a little strange. It's this moment where it's like, oh, hey, cousin, I've got some land. I've got a farm out a little north. You want to buy it? Jeremiah says, yeah. The modern amount of 17 shekels is about $34. In other times, to give you some context, when they talk about um, Solomon being able to bring horses up from Egypt, that cost about 2,000 shekels. So the difference between 17 shekels for a plot of land and 1,000 shekels for a horse. If your land is being inundated by an outside threat, like the Babylonians were, I'm imagining that real estate is not worth very much doesn't make a whole lot of sense to want to purchase a farm 
while your kingdom is falling apart. And moreover, Jeremiah is not like hanging out in his own house. No, he's in prison. The king had sort of sequestered him, hoping that the prophet would give him good news, that maybe things would get better along the way. But still, Jeremiah makes the choice to buy this land. It seems outlandish. It seems ridiculous. Why would I take some of what I have to give to something crazy that just happened to fall into my lap? God said this would come, and it did. But I think at times, the thing that we're called to do is the thing that God puts right in front of us, even if it seems to be the most outlandish thing. And sometimes, those are the exact things that cover the chasm. I fear that the American church suffers from a lack of creativity and innovation, that when the random land comes and falls in our lap, we're too afraid to say we should buy it. Because there are people out there who are dying. At times, the thing we're called to do is to do the thing God puts in front of us, even if it seems outlandish, but it trusts in the future promises of God. Jeremiah bought that land, put the deed in a cup, in a jar, gave it to a scribe and say, there will be a time. There will be a future when farms and vineyards are bought and sold. It's not right now. The kingdom is collapsing, but there is a future. And so, friends, I think today, and it's interesting because it's not going to be so long until the, the session is going to start thinking about their dreams, and we're going to talk about budgets, and we're going to talk about um, different people coming into leadership. What is it like for us as a congregation today to pray for what seems to be the outlandish thing to fall into our laps? What is it like to discern the things that God is calling this congregation to do? Yeah, it might seem crazy, but maybe that's the exact thing that God is saying, you need to go do this. Because I fear every time we don't do that, the chasm stretches a little bit wider. The gate gets a little bit more solid and our opulence becomes a little bit more for our own needs. We are invited every time we gather to go do the outlandish. And so I invite you, dear brothers and sisters, let us take time as we are preparing for another year as we're thinking about our dreams, to pray for God to tell us what farmland we should purchase. I mean, I don't know if it's literal farmland. We do own a lot of this, so I think we're okay. But there may be something outlandish that God is calling us to, and let us not be afraid to walk towards it. And let us not stumble towards the kingdom that God is calling us to.
places where Lazarus is healed. Because that's where God is today. So pray for our elders as they're thinking with their committees. Talk to the elders. Join a committee. Be bold. Don't be afraid. And let's buy the farmland. Not buy the farm. That's different. Let's buy that farmland and believe that the future is now. Thanks be to God.